All right, all right. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Gospel Truth. I'm your host, Marla Wilson, and we have another fantastic show for you. I've been looking forward to this one. I have Mike Jones of Inspired Philosophy and Tyler Vila of the Free Thinker Podcast, and we're about to have a fantastic conversation concerning divine hiddenness. This is the first time topic on the Gospel Truth, so I am thankful for you joining us in our live chat and also for Mike and Tyler for joining me as well. But before I bring the fellas in, make sure you know to subscribe to the Gospel Truth. Hit that notification bell so you can stay in the loop with all that has to uh, all the all the gospel has to offer right uh the the podcast everything you want to subscribe so you can don't miss any shows commentaries interviews debates you don't want to miss them also uh the gospel truth is not only on youtube uh, if you don't know on uh, facebook twitter instagram and tiktok so make sure you're following to those other social media platforms and support the ministry to follow a like on those platforms as well also all this all this content is on podcasts itunes google play google play stitcher spotify so make sure you are flown over there if you just want to listen to the audio you got a long drive ahead you want something to listen to why not listen to the gospel truth hit that follow on the podcast all right and as always i do have some shows that are coming up here in the future that i want you guys to be aware of all right uh, coming up after this one i have dakota Sorensen and jeremiah nortier and they're going to be debating baptism regeneration so i am looking forward to this one and i hope that you are too so make sure you are on it for this one after that, a great debate coming up here. I have Tourton Fan and Dr. Kurt Jarris is going to be jumping on, and they're going to be talking about some provisionism and is it semi-Pelagianism? Should be a good one. And I already see there are some provisionists that are in the live chat already, so this may be something that you guys want to take a look at in the future. After that, I have Michael Faber versus Michael Borowski. Does God predestine all things? This is going to be a great debate, so make sure you are looking forward to this one. And then after that, I have uh, Mr. C.J. Cox and Ricky Caldwell. We sh should we obey the law of Moses? And this is coming up soon, so make sure you are looking forward to this debate. And lastly, I've been trying to sort of beat this drum. Uh, we're doing a media fundraiser here. We're trying to get me uh, a fundraiser for the God's Truth, trying to raise funds for media equipment that we can take on the road. Uh, we don't like to rely on the venue's media equipment. Uh, we want to have our own so we can have the best, the highest quality that we can get and it'd be our own. So we will look forward, look, hopefully you are looking to support the ministry. And if you are, if God puts on your heart to support, all you have to do is look in the description of this video. You'll see the fundraiser link. Make sure you hit that link and it'll take you to the fundraiser page. All right. That said, I am looking forward to this debate and this discussion and I am excited. So we are going to bring these guys in. Uh, these guys don't need introduction. They're pretty much, if you're in the internet world and you're in a debate world apologetic, you know these guys. So let me bring these guys in so they can introduce themselves. What's up, fellas? What's going on? How y'all doing, man? Good. Great. Great, man. You bring that energy up a little bit, Tyler, man. Nah, Tyler, you said you lost 40 pounds, huh? I did, yeah. I've lost 40 pounds in about uh, 18 months. Hey, man. I need to get on that diet, man. I need to get on that. Mike, what's been up, man? How you doing, Mike? Doing good, doing good. I got a video uh, coming up on my channel, but I've been writing for a couple months. Uh, title is... The absurdity of Christianity. All right. All right. I look forward to that one, buddy. 
<laughs> All right, but I'm gonna let you guys introduce yourselves, man. Even though you guys are pretty much known in this world of apologetics, things like that, this type of discussions, I still want to give you a chance to introduce yourselves. Tell them what you do: blogs, YouTube channel, uh, web pages, whatever you do. Let them know. Start with Michael Jones, man. Go ahead and give a quick introduction to yourself, man. Yeah, I run Inspiring Philosophy. I make a bunch of different videos defending the Christian worldview. As I said, my upcoming video is the absurdity of Christianity, and that's all I'm saying about it. So be sure to watch to see what I'm talking about. All right, cool. Nice, quick introduction. All right, Tyler, you're up, man. Let's go ahead and give a quick introduction to yourself, man. Yeah, so I'm Tyler from uh, the Freethinker podcast, blog, and YouTube channel, um, and dedicated to everything that I find interesting about systematic theology, biblical theology, um, religious philosophy, things along those lines, um, and uh, primarily dealing, as of late, uh, you know, I've gone through quite a few different research projects. Um, as of late, the, the main one going through is dealing with uh, the nature of uh, freedom uh, and divine sovereignty. So, you know, compatibilism and libertarian freedom. I've been doing uh, that now for about three years as a, as a main research project. So that's where I'm at. All right. Awesome. Awesome, guys. All right. Appreciate you guys for joining me. And today we're going to be talking about divine hiddenness. Um, this is typically an argument that atheists presents to undermine the God of the Bible and or the understanding in, in this theistic theism in, in general. But the interesting thing is that Tyler still you still refer to yourself as a theist. Correct, Tyler? Yep, so. So I'm sure that will present a different uh, different phase or different understanding of Tyler's argument, the fact that he's coming from more of a theist position. And so what we're going to do, how we're going to structure this is that we're going to allow Tyler to present his case for divine hiddenness, hiddenness uh, and then we're going to allow Mike Jones to go into his understanding or his case for divine hiddenness. And then we're going to go to more of an open discussion. And that open discussion is going to last about 60 minutes or so. And then we're going to have... Uh, uh, some Q&A from the audience. Sounds good? Sounds good. All right, Tyler, I mm -hmm. uh, want you to start us off, man. Go ahead, just give us a rundown of, of your concerns or your thoughts on divine hiddenness. Yeah, so I mean, this is this is geared much more towards a discussion, so this isn't, you know, uh, long prepared opening statements from either of us. And I'm, and I'm very happy to be discussing this uh, with, with Michael. Um, I've been a big, big fan uh, of his and enjoyed uh, our conversations that we've had in the past, a lot of times on the same side. Um, talking about some of the same people we've, we've debated. Um, as many know, recently, uh, about a little less than a year ago, I, uh, I came out officially as, as no longer um, a Christian. So I uh, formally apostatized from the Christian religion, um, although I'm still a theist. And one of the big reasons for that was because that I did find there, there, there are lots of reasons. They all kind of dovetail together. Um, but one of them was this issue of divine hiddenness. Now, as it goes through this, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to say, well, you, you're still a theist. Right. So how do you as a theist explain it? And, and I, I will readily admit I don't have answers for lots of these these things. I'm still exploring. I'm still, uh, you know, seeking and, and trying to understand. I think that there's reasons to believe that there is a God that, that are unrelated to this. However, I found that a lot of what came up in problems of divine hiddenness, problems of suffering, problems of evil and things like that were made much more stark and much stronger under uh, a biblical or a Christian uh, position. Um, and that's for, for, for numerous reasons. And, and I should also say that there were, there were lots of other reasons. So this was part of um, many other reasons that I came to think that biblical Christianity just was, uh, was, was false. I could say more on that uh, in, in other, at, at other times. So we're going to focus on divine hiddenness. For me, the main issue of divine hiddenness is that it runs 
up against the biblical concept that God is love. Not merely that God is loving, not merely that God does loving things, but that God is by nature love. Um, and that God, uh, and, and as part of what that means is that God wants to have a uh, redemptive, uh, saving relationship uh, with his creatures. Um, and what that, what that does when you put those things together with divine hiddenness, what shakes out to me is it feels like a more pointed problem than simply with theism, where theism doesn't have some of the eschatological concerns about divine relationship. It doesn't have some of this concept of God being by nature love, right? Things along those lines. So when I, when I started thinking about divine hiddenness and I said, okay, well, as a, when I was a Christian, as a Christian, um, I was experiencing divine hiddenness. When I looked around unbelievers, they were experiencing divine hiddenness. When we, when we were looking at the types of things we see in the Bible where God showed up. Um, now, I don't want to get the impression that, that, that I expect that if God exists, he would show up like a magic cosmic butler or that he would show up like a vending machine or that he'd have to answer every single prayer or anything along those lines. But when it's pitched as a relationship when a with a loving father, those lang that language about God, even though it's analogical, still has to grab grasp onto something. It still has to track to an analogical concept. And I started looking at, at my relationship with, with my children as sons, and I started looking at things like Luke 11, where you have statements that, you know, even though you're evil, you still know how to give good gifts to your children. So the analog between God as a loving father and me as a father should be direct. Still an analog, but it should still be direct. And started looking around at the, the way that God was hid, hidden, especially to his own people, his own children, whether or not you're a Calvinist or non-Calvinist, his own people, Christians, believers, on all accounts are his children. Um, and yet God is hidden in ways that we wouldn't expect if God was a loving father in, an, an, in a meaningful sense. Right? Imagine that my sons came to me and they said, they didn't even come to me. They came to other people and they said, you know, we don't even know that our dad loves us. We don't, we don't experience his love. He's not around. He doesn't always provide for us. We, uh, we, you know, we, 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 we don't think that he loves us. And because that, we're going to go wander into the freeway and, and get hit by oncoming traffic, right? Sounds a little extreme, a little gruesome. But if you think about the apostate, if you think about someone like me, I was someone who loved God, loved his word, uh, was dedicated in ministry, you know, did, did, did all of those types of things. Again, not saying that the works are what save you, but I, was, I wanted that relationship. I was seeking that relationship. I was engaging in daily prayer. I was memorizing scripture. I was doing all of those relationship building things for decades. I was able to come and say that, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't feel God in any, in any meaningful sense. He's not present. I'm not seeing any difference in, 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 in my life compared to those others in the sense of, of answered prayers um, when, when it comes to, you know, getting blessings and jobs or whatever it is. P you know, people who don't believe have the exact same types of success rates, things along those lines. And God knew that if, if you know, nothing happened, that I would apostatize. And if Christianity is true, that means eternal damnation, whatever that means, eternal conscious torment, you know, annihilation, whatever it is, unless the universalist is right, which I don't think biblically is sound. He knew that that would be the outcome and yet still did nothing, right? If, I, if my sons made that type of statement, I would do everything in my power. Again, this isn't saying like, oh, I'd give them a Mercedes because they asked for a Mercedes, but I would make myself known. I would make myself present. I would be available. I, I, I you know, all those types of things. A Damascus Road experience would be fantastic, something along along those lines. So there, there are lots and lots of ways. I mean, there's it's it's almost trivially easy to think of ways 
that God could make himself present and known to his children uh, in ways that the normal theodicies and the normal explanations don't touch. So the, the, the other flip side of this was I found that things like the free will theodicy or the free will defense or soul building um, or, or those types of answers didn't actually um, explain the issue. They, they weren't what I call answers even in the right direction. They didn't scratch where the problem itched. Um, and, and so I found not only were there, um, were there issues of hiddenness where we wouldn't expect hiddenness, and hiddenness was in such a way that um, it would mean that, that the, the analog of God being a loving father, if that's God being a loving father, it's in a way that as a human father would be unloving and unfatherly. And so it makes that analog break down, right? So it makes it so that if love can be, if love can be expressed in ways that are unloving, I don't know what it means to say that God is loving more. If it can be broken down in ways where the father is unfatherly, I don't know what the analogy means anymore that God is father. So it breaks down the language about God as a loving father. Uh, and then it does it in ways that are not overcomable or, or surmountable by the, the standard theodicies uh, and resolutions um, that were provided. So that's just my general, um, you know, general statement of, of what the what the overall thrust of this type of problem was. So. All right, cool. Thank you, Tyler, for giving us that understanding. All right, Mike, uh, you're up uh, to sort of present your understanding of divine hitness. All right, Mike, you have the floor. Okay, yeah, I'm not going to try not to go super long. I'll try to go about the same length as Tyler did, which I think was about 10 minutes or so. So in uh, his uh, interview on Myth Vision, Tyler mentioned that divine hiddenness is really like an internal critique of Christianity. And I think that's absolutely true. I think that's kind of how the argument is presented. Now, Tyler talked about his own personal experience. I can't make this about him because I don't have access to his mental states. And I don't like psychoanalyzing people, especially non-believers. So I'm going to avoid that. Uh, but there are plenty of issues I see with arguing from divine hiddenness that I want to go through. So we talked about God being a loving father, but he doesn't act like a typical human father. And I agree, but that's also because God is far more than that, has far more in view in terms of eternity, omniscience, uh, seeing multiple planes of existence, which I hope we can talk about. But we also need to remember that I think uh, he brought up free will, for example. I think that's part of it, but it's not the full story. I think what is more important when it comes to divine hiddenness is the nature of sanctification, which scholars and philosophers like Paul Moser uh, talk about. So let's talk about when God first came to his people. We'll start, we don't have to go all the way back. Let's start with the Exodus. He, Jesus comes as a pillar of fire. He does all sorts of miracles. And what happens? Well, the people groan, they rebel. They use him until they get what they need, freedom, food, land, and then they immediately start worshiping other gods they didn't really it didn't really generate the type of sanctification the type of love god would truly want so god comes again at another time for part of his will not necessarily to remove divine hiddenness but because of his will he comes as the man jesus christ and what do we do what we see in the gospel of john some people try to forcibly make him a king and others accuse him of casting out demons with beelzebub and they kill him basically even his own disciples in Acts 1 didn't really understand fully what was going on. Uh, they said, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Again, it was always about them. So when God shows up who can create things out of nothing from his bare hands, we don't love him in the way that we are supposed to in the agape sense. Because of our sinful nature, uh, we tend to use him. 
uh, we don't really come to him as we are supposed to. So those are the issues with God having just presenting basic theism. Uh, so to quote two scholars, uh, Daniel Howard Snyder and Paul Moser, they say that uh, the God's desire for why people believe in his existence may well be much more important to him than that they believe in him in the first place. It may well be that God wants people to believe in his existence for certain reasons and not for others. That he prefers that they do not believe at all if only if the only option is to believe for the wrong reasons. So that's important there. And so Paul Moser talks about God wants cognitively robust theism. Uh, that's exactly what he wants. Now he's responding to, now, uh, before I get to that, I wanna point, also point out that uh, Schellenberg's argument assumes this idea that there are non-resistant non-believers. I have an issue, which I hope we can discuss about that later, because I don't think there really are is good evidence there really are non-resistant non-believers because that's just not hu how humans uh think about things we are not purely rational creatures we always have emotional reasons as well as ra rational reasons for our beliefs that we hold to so my other issue is just not with sanctification it's this idea that there, humans just don't simply operate that way we always have emotional and logical reasons for why we take the beliefs that we do and as i noted god wants cognitively robust theism, not just basic theism. So he just doesn't want people to believe in him. He wants people to believe in him for the right reasons. So again, this uh, philosophers I cited say this, if one believes that God exists on the basis of adequate evidence, just basic theism, that would not promote such moral transformations, maybe. Then bringing one to believe on the basis of such evidence would not serve God's purposes. So in general, God would manifest his perfect love by refusing to bring people to believe unless they were sincerely open to such moral transformations. So that's something to keep in mind when it comes to this, is that this idea that God wants to create cognitively robust theism. Now, if we look out in, into the world, we can see that God can do that now with many Christians uh, without providing undeniable, his undeniable evidence of his presence for the whole world. So he doesn't need to use basic theism to get people to cognitively robust theism. He can use other means to sort of generate that. Next, people, people often assume uh, they understand their motives. Uh, we all would do this. I can tell you if I would have gotten half of what I wanted when I was 20, I would be miserable right now. I once was talking to a friend who went through a divorce, and I asked, why did you get divorced? I thought you were in love. And he said, you know, I thought I was, and I thought that was the one, but I realized when I finally got that, I was really just in love with the idea of marriage, not marriage itself. And so people often say, you know, like, if I just got enough evidence, I would believe. But we are assuming, based on our limited information, that that is actually what would happen. It may not necessarily be the case. Often we go through these different cycles, these different changes. Let me give you an analogy. So people, I get up to 50 messages a day across all my platforms. And I have relative, for the most part, I've stopped responding to people. I don't answer everybody's questions anymore. And it's not just because I don't have enough time. That's a big part. But I realized with me engaging in these people with these people all day they're not becoming rational critical thinkers they're just coming to me and they're using me as their secretary so i answer their question about genesis and they go oh good he solved it the next day they got another problem well let me just go back to ip he'll answer it for me again and so they just become dependent on me and they just keep coming back to me i want my followers to be critical thinkers so i've had to become hidden to some degree because if i make myself more available they just end up using me as their piggy bank of answers, not because they really want uh, to become a critical thinker, to become their own thinker. They just assume that because I've given them answers, they're just going to keep coming to me and coming to me. So I've had to cut it off. 
God could have a lot of the same motives if he understands that if he was more uh, in people's lives because of our sinful nature, that we would use him. We wouldn't really come to him for the loving reasons that he truly desires. So that's something to keep in mind. And so God, of course, what he gives us is the gospel where we see Jesus on the cross and we have nothing but his love before us is the reason we come to Christ. Jesus says, Jesus says in the parable of the rich man in hell, if they have Moses, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not listen even if someone were to rise from the dead. This general idea that more evidence isn't going to necessarily convince. There is enough sufficient evidence that he has given for us. And that is what will actually generate cognitively robust theism, seeing God's actual love of force. Now, let's just say for the sake of the argument, there are non-resistant non-believers. But given God's actual knowledge, he may have good reasons for denying giving them enough evidence. So Jacobus Erasmus and Timothy Stratton present this in their paper and give arguments as to why God could actually delay giving evidence to non-resistant non-believers. They use the analogy of a guy in France. If God were to convert him now, he'd become a Christian, but that's it. But if God waits 10 years, he'll start a missionary in Africa. So given God's omniscience and his vast understanding of all the knowledge out there, he may very well have good reasons for delaying evidence if non-resistant non-believers exist. To quote, for all we know, the actual world is the best feasible freedom permitting world, even with its moral, natural, and gratuitous evils, as well as its divine hiddenness. For example, it is possible that the actual world is the one feasible freedom permitting circumstance where evils ultimately defeated and all who are not trans world damned are saved. If this specific feasible maximal harvest world exists, then a perfectly wise and loving God would either create it, no matter how much finite suffering, evil, or divine hiddenness existed, or refrain from creating for creation altogether. It is possible, therefore, to be the best feasible world. However, it is also possible that there are an infinite range of feasible world tied for the status of being the best. An omniscient God is in a position to know. Now, let's talk about the idea of what if a non-resistant non-believer dies without getting the evidence they need. Well, God could have good reasons. Maybe they become like Steve Anderson or the Westboro Baptist Church, or become like Kenneth Copeland. And People always bring up uh, Hebrews 9.27, and just as it was appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, but we also remember verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. So he's coming to save those eagerly awaiting for him. I think that would include non-resistant non-believers if they exist, because they're eagerly waiting for the evidence to be saved. And we also remember who's the judge. This is Jesus. Well, what did he say in John 9.41? He said, he says to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say you, we see, therefore your guilt remains. John 15, 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. So if non-resistant non-believers exist, then they have an excuse. And therefore Jesus says they would not necessarily be guilty. John Walton notes in the Old Testament, the pagan nations are never condemned for idol worship. Now he says... Idols won't do you any good. They're a waste of time. But he doesn't condemn them like he condemns Israel. That gives us the indication that Israel was judged more strictly because they had more information. Ultimately, I think divine hiddenness does, fails to really map on the reality that we need good evidence that non-resistant non-believers exist. And I think that's uh, that we can't get to that from what we actually have. And I think that there is plenty in, in the Christian worldview uh, to understand God as being just. And if he is just, he's going to judge people uh, equally and fairly when that time comes. All right, thank you so much, uh, both of you guys, for just running down your, your thoughts and your positions on divine hiddenness. And so now we're going to transition to more of an open discussion where you guys will be able to tackle some of the issues and have a nice, mm -hmm. fruitful discussion. 
All right, so that's it. You guys have the floor for about 60 minutes and audience as they traverse through this conversation, make sure you're getting your questions in because there will be about a 30 minute Q&A after that. So uh, you guys have the floor. Thanks, Michael. I don't know if you want to if you want to start, start first, uh, if you had anything specific about mine or if you want me to ask. Um, I mean, I'm always I mean, I mean, the I could respond to your issue about the guy being a loving father because I, I didn't I forgot to address that when I was going through, but I also didn't want to go too long. But I just talk. So why don't you talk? Yeah, so I think that. Um, one one of one of the things that I've noticed, and this comes up with with a lot of the theodicies, is that they 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 come across to me at least, and I and I hope this doesn't sound, you know, condescending or anything. It just it, it reminds me of this type of answer. I call it a thief on the cross counterexample, right? And they're they're the kind that when when people are talking about well, you know, what's necessary for salvation, everyone goes, ah, oh, but what about the thief on the cross? And they find like the one exception to the to the paradigm. I find that a lot of theodicies do that. Right. So, so, you know, let me, let me, let me address one of, one of the examples you gave and then maybe that'll start to, to discuss. Okay. Right. So, um, so, so you gave the example of the, the, the sanctification, right. And, and this idea was, well, um, God, God doesn't want to, you know, he wants the, you know, cognitively robust beliefs, this cognitively robust relationship. And then we have these examples of, you know, God coming in the pillar of fire, pillar of smoke, um, Jesus coming, giving bread, doing all the miracles. People still wanted it for the wrong reason and still crucified Jesus and, and, and all that and all that kind of stuff. And so it's not a guarantee that if God manifests himself, that there'll be this one-to-one -one correlation to a, a meaningful relationship. And that's fine. I guess where, where I come, it that strikes me kind of as like saying, well, some homeless people, if you offer support, are just going to abuse it and they're going to use it for drugs and alcohol anyways. So therefore, we shouldn't support most of them. Right? Uh, I, that, that to me seems like a strange type of response, especially, and this is my last sentence, I, I, I know you'll have a, a hundred things to say about this, and especially if I was omniscient, omnipotent, and the creator of the society such that I could have created the society from the very get-go that there was no such thing as homelessness to begin with. Right? So, so it, it, it seems to me that part of what your answer also does is it's starting 100 miles downstream after the fall, after sin, after all that kind of stuff, when we could go back and say, okay, but I could have created a world without an initial covenant of works without, uh, you know, a tree of knowledge of good and evil. He could have stopped Satan from coming down and tempting them. He knew that was going to happen. Right? He could have done all these things that, that would have prevented the need for um, that type of that that type of uh, work of redemption in the first place. And none of that would have violated freedom. I see no reason to think why you wouldn't be have cognitively robust belief because ostensibly, if the fall hadn't happened. Adam would have had cognitive robust robust belief. Um, so I, I, I just that's one that's some of the reasons why I find the, the, you know these types of answers um, unsatisfactory. So yeah, um, interesting points. Can you still hear me by the way? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah we can hear you. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I don't know what's going on, on my camera. I tried to reset it, I don't know. Uh, so when you talk about like why does God even create the system for home 
homelessness to begin with. I think at that point, we're just sort of shifting the argument away from divine hiddenness and more to the problem of evil and suffering. Like why even create a world where there is a need for hiddenness if it's going to help with sanctification? Well, that's a whole different argument. It has to do with uh, the idea of evil and suffering. Now, that's the case. We're not even really talking about divine hiddenness and how it would be incompatible with Christianity. I think given the Christian worldview as an internal critique here, uh, there really is no issue. And it really just comes across as just sort of the opposite of arguing from religious experience, which I also find is equally unconvincing. You know, the Christian runs up and says, Jesus has is, is revealed himself to me, believe in him. The non-Christian runs up and goes, Jesus hasn't revealed himself to me, don't believe in him. It's not really an objective argument beyond just personal justification. And I think given the world that we have and the Christian worldview, that hiddenness is necessary to some degree and in certain ways. Now, if you wanna shift and just say that, yeah, the hiddenness isn't an argument more, shift more to talking about evil and suffering, Sure, that's fine, but I, I, I was under the impression we were going to talk about hiddenness itself. Yeah, well, I mean, I should say, I, I mean, I think hiddenness and suffering are actually two sides of the same coin. Um, but I, but I don't think that I've that I've moved into suffering, right? So the 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 issue, so at least I don't think I've done it illegitimately, right? One of one of the things that I find in theodicies and, and answers divine hiddenness is that it, it's it's the bump in the rug. Right. In order, once one pushes down, it pops up over in suffering, um, and so and so you say, okay, well, well, now we're getting over this problem of suffering. I'm saying, okay, fine, but that seems to be the correlate, right? So, so if I push down this this objection to, to hiddenness, well, sure, it becomes a problem of suffering, but that's because like hiddenness is only a problem because there is suffering, and so. It, like it, it seems that there's there's no escape then from that, right? So it, if divine if the problem of divine hiddenness is answered because it it is part of this answer to the problem of suffering, well, if I say well there didn't have to be suffering in the first place and that's why there didn't need to be hiddenness in the first place, it seems an illegitimate response to say oh well now we're shifting to to suffering. Because I'm really just answering the, the, the answer that you gave to hiddenness. Well, yeah, but what I'm saying is if, if the, I mean, this is fine, but if you're saying like, why is there, why does hiddenness need to exist? And I go, well, you know, there's an issue of suffering. Then you go, why is suffering? I mean, sure, we can have that uh, conversation here. And I think there's many more reasons as to why. So, for example, um, if that's what you're arguing, um, I want to ask a simple question. Have you read Lord of the Rings? Yeah. Have you read The Adventures of Tom Bombadil? No. So I, th I think that's an important point there. Uh, I, I think that people kind of miss. You know, we talk about people voting with their feet. We talk about people, how their actions speak louder than words. And for some reason, humans really, really do like stories where there is triumph, where there is good versus evil and there is triumph. This is why we don't watch reruns of the Teletubbies. And we read stories like Lord of the Rings, or we go and see popular movies uh, like Sound of Freedom, for example, because we want to see that. We like this idea of that there being a world where there is evil and suffering, but good ultimately triumphs over it. That is the Christian story. And I think ultimately we may say that it would be better for a world without evil, but we ultimately have our actions that speak louder than words. And we are constantly, every day, choosing stories, choosing worlds that do have evil and suffering, but with that, the idea that good ultimately overcomes 
and defeats it. Why wouldn't God prefer the same? The triumph, a world with triumphant evil is going to be a maximally good world. But you can't get triumphant evil without without there being actual evil, or triumphant good, I mean, without there actually being uh, evil to overcome. So I think from God's perspective, and he can create a world where if he wants to create a maximally good world, he's going to create a world with triumphant evil. And if he's going to create a world with triumphant evil, then we are, he's going to create a world where there needs to be evil to be overcome. But that's the Christian story. It's this long story where there is evil, there is suffering, but it's ultimately overcome. And for all those who become his children, all of that is turned into aspects of their own sanctification and triumphant good in that regards. So if we have this idea of a world of suffering, it's not, I don't think that's inconsistent with God because there are, I would say, given all things, that a world with triumphant evil is going to be far better than a world with just good. I'm sorry, I keep saying triumphant evil. I mean triumphant good. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, my, my, my first cheeky response is, is going to be, I also really enjoy reading Camus and Cootsie and, and Paul Oster and, and other, you know, the kind of these deconstructionalist literature that don't, they don't have any of that. Right. So so uh, but but I but I take your I, I take your point. I know, I know the literary example that you're trying to give. I guess part of me then would say, well, or, or, or ask, I guess, then. Do you think that that ultimately the the explanation for hiddenness and then maybe indirectly evil just is that it makes for a better story? I, well, no, I think that's a part of it, but I think there's more. I think it makes for better soul building, better characters. So this is something I talked about in my video, The Problem of Suffering, A Christian Response. I introduced a concept I have called the Law of Triumph, where God imbues a law in the universe that if any creature encounters suffering, it can be used to build a more good. And so I also think it has to do with building virtuous creatures, building good creatures over time. So we would say a, we would say Frodo in Lord of the Rings is far more interesting after he goes through his big long experience, rather if he just would have stayed in the Shire and had tea every day. He actually has experienced courage. He's experienced compassion. He's experienced overcoming uh, obstacles. And that creates for far better soul building, far more uh, uh, children of God-like creatures, because now we've had we have uh, expanded our knowledge of virtue. We've expanded our knowledge of aspects of existence in various ways. So it's going to actually give us the soul building that would actually turn us into uh, worthy sons of gods and daughters of gods is what I would say. So it's not just telling a good story. I think that's part of it because I think triumphant good is uh, the mo is maximal good and it's worthy of celebrating and worthy of creating. But also I think it has a lot to do with soul building as well. I, I guess though, I mean, you, you'd have to, I mean, okay. Well, I guess I should orient this because I, I don't actually know your position on this. I, I have a hunch, but are you a universalist? Like an actual, not a hopeful universalist, like an actual universalist. I am a, no, I'm a legal universalist in that I believe that the only people in hell are the people who choose to be there. So everyone is in heaven who wants to be there, the only, the only people in hell. And also I'm eventual annihilationist in that I believe that hell is the process of annihilating souls out of existence. So. So, so then at, 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 to that regard though, then soul building um, seems to create a lot of, oh, you're back. You're not hidden it. anymore. We were suffering, but now, <laughs> now you're no longer hidden. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big, I'm a big knack for production back here. So I was back here grinding my teeth the whole time Mike was hidden. <laughs> I figured, I fixed it. You're welcome. Thanks, yeah. Mike. Appreciate it, buddy. Um, I so because it, it it seems to me then that that in order to have the soul building of a, of of a you know 
narrow is the road and broad is the path, right? It seems to have the soul building for narrow. There's a, there's a sure an awful lot of collateral damage to get there. So I'm confused on what, what the argument is. Is it just the amount of suffering that's the problem? Not, no, I'm not even talking about suffering. I, so it, it seems to be that, um, again, I, I, you know, I'm trying to stay on hiddenness and not move into suffering. Again, it's hard because they're entirely interwoven. But that's fine. Yeah, God, that's fine. God, like every single person could have, had, could have a Damascus Road experience, right? Mm -hmm. It, it, it seems, it seem, you know, I, I could think of lots of, lots of, trivial ways um, that, that, uh, that atheists wouldn't exist, right? They still might, might believe, they still might believe for the wrong reasons. They still might, you know, whatever it is. Um, but I mean, I can think of all kinds of trivial ways where God could make himself known and there might not be so much collateral damage. Like, I, you know, I, I can, attack, you know, if I had a massive of experience, I wouldn't have apostatized. Um, I, I know, I know mm. lots of people who would be very happy, you know, whatever you think of non-resistant non-believers, and I actually think there's a biblical case to argue that there, if you believe in the inspiration of the Bible, there, that there is no such thing as a non-resistant non-believer, right? Because that, that just, you know, that, that is what that sin in the fall is. Um, but um, it, it, just, it seems to me that in order, in order to say that the soul building is there, you have to be able to have some type of answer for the billions of people who have died without that soul building whatsoever. Um, so, mm -hmm. it, so it, and maybe that's what you're getting at with your Hebrews reference. Uh, although I, I, I would disagree with that exegesis of that passage, that somehow there's like this second chance evangelism after death where Jesus comes to them, right? I mean, is that are, like, are you, are you like, uh, do you lean towards that? Like that, that second chance after death of it? Where yes, I've been an advocate that there is. I've been an advocate that the postmortem salvation is definitely um, plausible and probably does happen. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that would be that would be an interesting conversation because I, I I find those I, I find that not to be convincing from the passages normally adduced for it. But so so then at that point, you, I mean, yeah, I guess, I guess you would you would then say if I'm understanding you right, well, there's soul building in this, in the actual, like in, in, like it's all the actual world in the, before the eschaton, right? There's soul building for those who get their soul building here. After death, there's this, there's this second chance appearance of Jesus. Um, so that, so that divine, so really divine hiddenness is only an issue like this side of the veil, but it doesn't actually prevent salvation on the other side because everyone knows that Jesus, you know, is God exists and therefore and they're based on their belief after that i mean am i am i am i representing that right the way you think is again i'm not saying that you like affirm this I, jot and tittle as far as it is plausible see i i i think we look through to the other side to you know, borrow the, the line from i believe it's alice in wonderland through a mirror darkly i mean we can only speak of bits and pieces of it i'm not sure if that's the case or not i can be agnostic about it so i'm not entirely sure what to say about that kind of idea Okay. Um, it, it, it seems to be a way, a, a kind of a rescue, if there's this kind of second chance from divine hiddenness, um, uh, late, you know, after, after death type of thing. That, I mean, that might be a, a solution for it. Um, well, I'm not, I don't know if I'm, I'm saying that there's, there's that aspect. I'm, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm saying that, look, if, 
even if there are non-resistant non-believers. Just see, look at what Jesus says in John 15, 22. If they had not known, uh, then they would not be guilty. But now that I have come, they have no excuse. Well, if there are people that have excuses, you guys got nothing to worry about. I mean, like, uh, you, you guys actually have an excuse. So, I mean, Jesus sort of let, sets this thing her down. Romans 5, 13, sin is not counted where there is no law, even though sin abound. So this idea that God is not going to judge people based on the fact that they may not have known about the law or they may not have actually had the proper evidence. So if there are non-resistant, non-believers, then they have an excuse. As C.S. Lewis said, honest rejection of Christ, however wrong, shall be forgiven and healed. I See, I guess that, that would cause more problems, I, I would think, right? So, so do you ever watch Doctor Who? Have you ever seen Doctor Who? No. I, you should. I love so it's a fantastic show. I love Doctor Who. There's this episode no, I, where I'm, I'm refusing to watch it just so when I people's here I don't watch it. I enjoy the reaction more than I could probably ever enjoy a show. Oh, I'm not gonna be judgmental. I'm just gonna say you should. It's great. But so there's this episode basically that there's this like there's this universal secret. And everybody that finds out about the secret kills themselves. Right? Uh, I won't mm -hmm. I won't do a spoiler of what the secret is. you you might not watch it, but other people might. So there's this, there's this idea that the revealing of the secret is actually what ends up like killing everybody. It's better to not know, right? It seems to me that built into that idea, that, that kind of that reading of Romans 2, where people are only, are, are, are only condemned if they're, if they're actually aware of the law, if they're, or if they're aware of it, and there's no condemnation where there's a law, it seems at that point that you would have every impetus to not engage in evangelism. like Like, then, then I would actually present like an opposite problem. I would say, man, God, God really kind of screwed the pooch then by showing up at all. Like he should have stayed as hidden as possible. Kind of a kind of a dumbsday. Like divine divine hiddenness is divine mercy. Like he should have stayed as hidden as possible because then people wouldn't be condemned for for rejecting Jesus. Right? It, it seems oh. that actually God showing up has condemned more people than his not showing up. So two things I want to say about that. I anticipated this. Uh, two things to say about this. For one, I'm an, I'm a, I'm an outspoken post-millennialist in that I believe that the church age is supposed to bring about a new Eden. So we should go out and evangelize because Christianity will make the world a better place. And there's a lot of data to support this. Robert Woodbury's work on Christian missionary activity, where he actually ran a model of regression, showed that where Christian missionary activity happens, we see more democracy, colonial form, more education, better living standards. Tom Holland's book, Dominion, shows how Christianity led to the abolitionist movement, uh, led to the idea of abusing children being wrong, created such a wonderful world. And so we should be spreading this if it's actually really good for us. Second, I would be given an Aristotelian response that Christianity is eudaimonia. It is the best way to live. It is the relationship with God will be better for everyone. So why wouldn't we evangelize if we think this is going to improve everyone's life overall? It's better to actually give people more information. If it's going to create a better world, it's going to create better lives for them. And ultimately, Christ also Christ ultimately also commanded it. If an omniscient deity tells us to do this, I think we have good reasons for trusting him because he can look into the future and see what is actually going to be better for people. So I think there are multiple reasons we should still evangelize. Yeah, I think there, I, for, for, I would push back on both points. I would say, I would say one of those is, is kind of a chicken and egg scenario. Uh, I mean, I grant that Christianity has brought great things, great things into the world, right? But the question is, 
is it is it the Christianity that's coming that's improving the cultures, or is it Western civilization that's coming no. that has created a bunch? Of, you know, the, so I, there, I, there's there's that question of of what actually is going. Now, Christianity has had positive influence on things like slavery, right? So there is that. But when you, when it comes into quality of living, right, there a lot of improvements come around by having institutional educational systems. Um, by having you know better better science and medical systems, by uh, you know understanding understanding uh, you know about how washing hands helps, right? Uh, one of the one of the best things that missionaries did when they traveled the world is they brought hand washing places. Um, so mm-hmm. you know there 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 there's a lot of the benefit and the improvement of quality of life isn't the correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation. Um, so that that'd be my first uh, on that first point. If you want to come back to that in a minute, the second one. Um, uh, oh, now I'm drawing, now, now I drew a blank. Well, your second one was Aristotelian, the idea of we need to reach eudaimonia, the best way for us to live. Yes. I would say so, it's Christian life. Yeah. So then, uh, then I would say we could we could almost run like a reverse Bayesian type of maybe not maybe not Bayesian, but you could you could run also like a like a reverse I guess reverse Pascalian, right? You could say, well, sure, <clears throat> maybe it's the case that it, it's better for remember it, narrow road. Narrow road Christians. Yes, it's the world majority religion, but of world population throughout history, narrow road. Um, especially when you talk about intrinsically, uh, you know, religious. If you're, you know, the church within the church, Israel within Israel, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure you'd agree. Not everyone that says that they are Christian was, was ever saved. Depending on your theological view, some people are going to say that of me, right? So, sure, you have better quality of life of those people who are in pure and relationship with Jesus. But again, the flip side is now you have billions of people that are now condemned because of it, right? So whereas you would have all of those people, the billions plus the, 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 you know, those who are living life with Jesus, all of those people would have had that quality of life in the afterlife, right? Because they wouldn't have been condemned for rejecting Jesus, right? So, so it, it seems to me that it's, it, yes, you have this, this finite good of a quality of life in uh, on this side of the veil but you have again run a pascal and you have an infinite amount for these billions and billions of people on the other side right so so which, wh- how is that a better trade-off so i want to respond to four things you said in the western civilization versus christianity the narrow road uh, issue billions now condemned so i guess three things there so what is it western civilization or christianity um i cannot i, I cannot be more direct it is christianity and there are numerous scholars that have pointed out this. Check out Samuel Moyne's book, Christian Human Rights. It was a great book with numerous authors called Christianity and Human Rights, an introduction. Uh, you can look at, again, Robert Woodbury actually ran a regression model where he actually demonstrated that Christian missionary activity is leading to all of these good things, which comes directly from the Great Commission. Tom Holland's book, Dominion, has gone into numerous ways. Stephen Martin's wrote a little paper like Do Not Sexually Abuse Children, showed how Christians had to come up with new language to, to condemn the Roman practices of using children for sex and all these things. A lot of what we got here, I mean, this is also Charles Taylor's uh, point in his book, A Secular Age, that Christianity created secularism in itself. And we see there's just so much evidence that Christianity is the biggest pillar to Western civilization. I'm not saying it's the only pillar, but it definitely is the biggest pillar when it comes to this issue. So it definitely is Christianity that is going to this. And I talked about it in my video on post-millennialism called Rethinking the End Times, where I gave a lot of evidence, uh, not just from this, but also from how Christianity uh, was crucial for the development of science and then led to a lot of technology, these types of things. 
the other issue you talked about is the narrow road uh, issue. Like there's billions of people that are now condemned. Well, this is, again, from a limited perspective. We don't know how long the timeline is supposed to go on in this case or what is supposed to happen in the future. This may just be the beginning of human civilization. And it could spur, spur uh, you know, Paul Davies, for example, who's a deist, says, you know, like he was asked once the question, why is life not across the whole universe? And he said, well, it, it may be and it may be there in time. I mean, he says we, we this universe is going on for millions and millions of years. Look at how far we've advanced in just a hundred years we went from not even having planes to putting a man on the moon in what like 70 years or so imagine what we could do in ten thousand years and exploring the universe and part of my eschatology even in the post-millennialist sense is that after the resurrection it'll be our job to turn multiple planets into eden now i know that's speculative but that could very well be the case and if that's the case the beginning of the timeline is very small compared to the millions and all the good it could create in the long run now you talked about let, that god should remain even more hidden because you know like you know, people would get on the other side and they'd be saved again i think we look through the to the other side uh, through a mere darkly we don't have all the information i don't think it's this idea that if you die without the, all the information you're necessarily saved because again, I've only said that if there are non-resistant, non-believers, they could very well have a good excuse. Uh, but I also don't think that necessarily gets them in before God. I think every creature has to choose whether they want to be, want to follow God or not. Uh, I think very well there could still be this idea of these Satan-like figures, people that are in God's presence, and they still rebel. There could be somebody, you know, who was born on like Hawaii, you know, 800 years ago, who dies. You know, and he ends up becoming following Satan anyway or taking that same kind of route. We don't know everything's going on the other side. But when it comes to our, our terms of existence on this world, I don't think divine hiddenness is really that much of a problem for Christianity in what we know now and what we have available. So, well, I, I could answer to, to a, you know, a bunch of those, but I, I get uh, maybe we can maybe we can shift gears a little bit. Okay. I wonder... I, I want to go to like the the father and the father the loving father language. Okay. Um, it seems it seems to me that that if I as a father was as well let, let's just use the thing like hidden right I'm not going to try to make it polemical and say absentee or deadbeat or anything like that I've seen some of those in the comments I'm not trying to I'm not trying to say oh the Christian God is a deadbeat dad or like that that's not that's not it. It's just, <laughs> I mean that's not my rhetoric. So like if people say that's my that's not my claim, it's, you know. But the the um, it would make it seems like it would make us a deadbeat dad if we did those that that type of thing, right? Uh, so you know if if, if my kids. If you found I, out that, you know, I my mean, kids were like, oh. Like five seconds. Sorry. I, oh, yeah, apparently, yeah. if I take my earbuds out, it the mic goes off and my ear got itchy. So, sorry. Can you go back like five or ten seconds? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, so it, it seems to me that, that, or I guess I would ask you, do, you know, what, what would you think about, uh, you know, if, if you found out that my kids, um, you know, were like, oh, we, we don't we don't know our dad. He doesn't He doesn't show up. We never talk to him. He never answers us. We don't know what he looks like. We've never met him, all that kind of stuff. And you came and talked to me and you're like, what's up? And I'm like, it's for their good, right? I, I'm helping them to grow up to be self-sufficient. And if I showed up, you know, lots of kids, when their dads show up, they abuse them and want a Mercedes illegitimately. Like, would you be satisfied with those types of answers from a, from, and I'm not trying to say like, you know, the guy is like a big human or anything like that, but, but, 
if if loving father is you know uh, is an analog to a, to a concept, then surely loving father is the, is the analog concept. Would you find that to be that you'd hear that and you'd be like, oh, that that's a dad who loves his kids. That that that's a dad who who is present with his kids. So. I do not think a human would be considered loving if they did that, no. But I don't think that necessarily compares to God's ontological status, if that makes sense. It, it does. I mean, it does. And I'm not trying to push the creator-creature distinction, right? I, I, I understand the distinction. I think it's a valid distinction in many ways. Mm -hmm. But the reason why I think this is important is because we're told to, to love as God loves. Like, like it's not that... <clears throat> Like when in the Bible, when 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 uh, you know believers are told to, to judge, right? It's not that they're told that they're going to be an eschatological judge and they're you know all that kind of stuff, right? There's an analog that happens. But when we're told that God is love, and the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, we don't think, oh well, that means the exact opposite of what it means for God to be love. Right. The, the, the analog has to match. Right. So they have to match for the analog to work. Right. So if we say, oh, well, that would not only would that would make someone actually positively unloving. Right? It, it, then I don't know what to do with the analog when unloving can be love. Does that make sense? Yeah, so let's talk about that, this idea of, yeah. of this whole thing. So we're told to love as God loves us. One second, I'm going to put a light on here because it's getting dark because of the clouds. Sorry, again, it, for the audience knows, I could lose power because I'm in Tucson and it's monsoon season and there is a big cloud out there, just so everyone's aware. Uh, so if I just vanish, it's it's because Tyler has scared me away with his powerful arguments. That's obviously Obviously. Reason, so. obviously. Uh, yeah. It's hidden for our so benefit. So let's talk about... So yeah, so hidden for our benefit. So let's talk, so let's, I just want to talk briefly, and I know yeah. you said you're not making this, but I'm gonna talk about briefly about the ontological distinctions. From one, God has, is omniscient, he can see eternity. He can see, for example, our life is a mere blip compared to eternity with him. Uh, so he's gonna be able to see all of that into perspective here when he's talking about it. Furthermore, God is also uh, on a plane of existence uh, different than us that he can see. So when, you know, someone dies, they don't just go out of God's present. Like if a kid were to die in front of his own father, they're now, you know, outside of his initial experience. He doesn't know what happened to them. That's not the same with God. I think if we're going to compare, you know, fathers to children, I think we need to compare it like in the movie Inception. So because they are able to go down different dream levels and sometimes in the in the dream levels in the movie Inception, they shoot each other to help each other, despite it seeming like the, uh, the wrong thing to do if they were in that part of the dream and they forgot they were in a dream. So at one point, the main character, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, takes um, Ellen Page, I believe, into a dream. And he lets the people in the dream basically almost like take her and kill her because he's trying to teach her about how to activate in the dream world. Now, if that was in the real world, we'd be like, don't do that. But we understand because it's in a dream world. He's using it for, well, soul building or better understanding of how to navigate the world of inception and all that types of things. So we need to think of it more like that. Now, when we talk about God being a loving father, I think we need to remember when we're going to make this analogy, we can't think of people as purely innocent and good if we're going to talk about in terms of God's understanding or the Christian understanding. We need to think of it more like God would be hidden from orcs in Lord of the Rings because, quite frankly, I think humans on in this reality are going to better match orcs in Tolkien's world. And I think, you know, for example, if, you know, 
God shows up, Eru Iluvatar, the orcs aren't going to worship him and love him. They're going to try to kill him, use him, these types of things. So he would have to use various means to bring them closer to him. It's like what C.S. Lewis talks about in his book, Till We Have Faces. It's not that God is hidden from us. It's that we don't have faces yet. We've not reached the point where we can truly love him as we are supposed to, because we are so far distant from him. So he is bringing dust to him. He is loving us and he's going to use his you know, understanding of knowledge in the future to bring all that he can who will freely accept and love him as best as he possibly can and again if there are non-resistant non-believers that die that process can still continue on after death i would argue uh by the way you might have already won me over just by bringing up inception because it's my favorite movie i think it's one of the best movies, right <laughs> uh, but but so but a couple things right so so i i guess i would say well the the problem is is that the reason why they can shoot someone in a different layer, layer of inception is because that's not the real world, right? So there, there, there's, there's a crunchiness that comes with it being the real world. Like you can, you can shoot someone in the real world to wake them up in the actual world. So in order for that analogy to work, it seems like you'd almost have to be arguing metaphysically that this isn't the real world, right? But, but you know clearly- I'm an idealist. What's that? You know I'm an idealist. I, I, under, I understand that you're an idealist, but but it's not that, so our plane of existence, though, it's not that we go from a different a different plane of existence to another plane of existence, right? It's just that we exist in a different plane of existence than say, say God exists or whatever it is. Whatever you can make out of saying God exists in a plane of existence, I'm not, anyways. So, and then and then for the, the C.S. Lewis, or not C.S. Lewis, the, the, the Narnia example, I'd say, well, the difference is, is that works aren't made in the image of J.R.R. Tolkien. Right. In, in, in the biblical narrative, I, I mean, as humans, all humans are made in the image of God. Right. So so we're not made in the image of, of Thauron. Right. We're, we're made in the image of God. So so I, I would say that, that that seems to be again, I know I'm poking holes in the analogy, but it's why I don't think that those types of analogies work. I think the more interesting one is the till we have faces. Right. So C.F. Lewis asking, you know, why must holy places be dark places? Um, and he's trying to answer this question. You're right. He's trying to say, well. The, the reason why is because we can't see God face to face until we have faces, until we can see him. We, we, we don't have the mechanisms to see him face to face. But this is where, you know, I, I used to really appreciate Lewis on that. Um, by the way, Peter, Peter Kreeft has a great series where he, talk, he gives talks to the, the, the Fiat Lewis books, which I highly recommend. They're, they're, they're fantastic. But here I would just come back and say, well, why couldn't God have just created us with faces? Again, the, the, the problem that I think hiddenness gets to is, is kind of, and I don't mean to say this crassly, it's, it's, it's a problem of garbage in, garbage out. Uh, if you start off with saying, well, we're already garbage, we're already, and I don't mean that in the saying, well, human beings are garbage in value, but I'm saying we're, you're already starting with it's broken code then you can reverse engineer and you can come up with these answers and say, okay, well, there's this way out of broken code, right? I'm just gonna say, well, why start with, why have there be broken code? It doesn't, we could have been made with faces. We could have been made that way. We, you know, we could have been made, we could have, we could have been made in an eternal blessed state. Um, so we, so in the same so way that the trans world righteous angels were, Right. If you're if you're mm -hmm. if you're sympathetic, sympathetic to, to Molinism and, and that type of metaphysics. Right. So mm -hmm. there, there were beings that aren't trans world depraved. Um, 
And again, I, I don't think trans world depravity is a right category. I'm just, I'm trying to apply this to multiple theologies, right? So there, there are those who say, well, you know, trans world depravity, it couldn't be, and I'm just saying, well, there, 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 there are theories that nearly infinite amount of beings who weren't trans world depraved. You know, make, make a world with an infinite amount of those ones. Uh, and then you don't have the fault, right? There, there, there seems to be lots of logically possible and feasible worlds where we wouldn't have started with the broken code to begin with. Mm. So real quick on the whole, this is not the real world. I'd recommend just on as a side note, there's a paper by Gabriel Citrin, Dreams, Nightmares, and a defensive argument and in a defense against arguments from evil. So he argues that perhaps like when we die, we go to a more real plane of existence kind of thing. Um, and that would also at the eschaton that's the new heaven and new earth it's this world being transformed and brought into some sort of new deeper reality as well but so you brought the idea why not create us with faces why not create us in that world well i mean from the christian perspective if this is an internal critique that doesn't necessarily guarantee everyone will be saved because we know of satan and the demons we know that there was still rebellion with that kind of aspect and so it doesn't necessarily work and god can create cognitively robust theism on this plane of existence through these processes of triumph of creating more triumphant good expanding virtue and it's also the process itself that i believe is very important for creating the virtue so again let's go back to frodo and lord of the rings for example so frodo like could god just have created frodo uh with this already the, the type of character he had uh when he got back to the shire I guess so, but again, would it have really have been that authentic, good, uh, triumphant uh, virtue without the story behind it? And I think going through the process itself creates, I guess you could say, more of a grassroots type of virtue instead of like an astroturf. It's going through the story, going through the motions. This is also why God, I mean, the story of scripture. There is a story process going through where Jesus himself becomes man, goes through the process, has his own life, his own story. It's because there's something about going through the process itself that is able to create very unique types of virtue, very unique types of soul buildings, very unique stories ultimately. And I would say that's all sort of collected together as a good reason for why God would allow this type of process to unfold. It's not just this idea that, yeah, he could create us like that, but A, it could still cause rebellion. So why not allow for really cool processes, really cool stories and really cool virtue and soul building ultimately? Um, if it's not going to guarantee that it were created directly in God's presence, like perhaps Satan and many of the demons, then why not allow for these really cool processes and stories and still have the triumphant good? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, guess I would go back and say, well, God didn't have to create Satan. That's the whole point, right? I mean, he he's omniscient. He, he knew that the nearly infinite amount of beings who would have never fallen. And fallen. He, he could have created those to begin with rather than the ones that he did create. And I guess I would go back and say, well, I, I mean... <clears throat> okay, I, I'm gonna. I, I think there. I think there's objections based based on what you said about Jesus that I can put. Again, I, I think a lot of these objections are you know kind of have that bump in bump in the carpet thing. I push it down here. I think if I push on that one, we're gonna we're gonna pop up in problems with hypostatic union. Um, so you know, I'll, I'll I'll leave that for now because it's not really the, the topic. But I but I would just say, well, if if it's a trade off between robust virtue for uh, you know a select handful of people like Frodo and the Shire at the expense of rape, genocide, murder, torture, all that, you know, eternal, eternal damnation, annihilation, all that kind of stuff for billions of people, then yeah, then yeah, the trade-off the trade might be better that Frodo was just created with that type of virtue to begin with. 
but also it seems to me that 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 type of virtue can be um it doesn't just have to be de facto it can be de jure by nature right i mean i mean jesus ostensibly ha apparently has that right he, he was created in every way like us um but but without sin right so there, there was something in that in in you know you're, you're you're not a you're not a catholic so you don't you don't think you know uh i uh, i don't say i don't say if i'm catholic or not i keep that okay <laughs> i i haven't seen you affirm the immaculate conception of uh, of mary as, as a means <laughs> to explain why sin did not enter into the heritage of jesus um so so you know bar, barring that whatever it is whatever whatever process was there that did that for the humanity of jesus that still allowed him to have virtue you know it, it, god could have done that for every single person right he could have, he could have prevented right so I, you know i think a lot about the metaphysics of, of creation right because it comes up a lot in free will and all that kind of stuff god could have made it so that the fall didn't have this metaphysical impact on nature on 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 humanity on the will on the constant right it could have been a localized event with just a moral implication why did it have to create a why did it have to fundamentally alter the nature of humanity such that all are fallen in Adam? Right? God set it up that way. It didn't have to be that way. Um, it's a very I think it's a very weird position to say that God was somehow forced to create it such that if someone had a sin, it therefore impacted the the, the, the metaphysical makeup of all of reality such that there's corruption wherever the curse is found, so to speak. Um, you know, that, that, that's an intentional choice. That didn't have to be that way. Right? So it just, it seems to me that there are lots of ways that it could have been otherwise that wouldn't need this type of overcoming explanation. Right? You, you, you might be able to give good answers it, once there was a problem, you know, garbage in, garbage out, but why start with the broken code to begin with? Could have made it completely different. And, and you still would have had the same positive, um, the same positive outcomes. You still would have had soul building. You still could have had robust cognitive belief. You still could have had all of those things without rape, genocide, torture, human trafficking, child sex trafficking, malaria, leukemia. You could have done it without all those things. So a lot, a lot there. Let me try to go through a lot of this. So uh, let's let's just sort of work backwards here. So when you say why start out to be broken to begin with? Again, this is not really divine hit. This is more like moving into why even suffering exists to begin with. And I would again go back to the whole idea that when we we're going to vote with our feet on this, our actions are going to speak louder than words. We're going to seek out the really interesting world building stories where there is a lot of evil, a lot of suffering, because the more there is, the more triumphant it is at some point. And so that we do recognize that triumphant good does come out of the defeat of evil. The best kind of triumphant good comes out of the defeat of evil. But you can't have that unless there is evil to begin with. And so in my video on suffering, I note that God has imbued in the universe this idea of a law of triumph, where that if a creature encounters suffering, if he chooses, he may allow that suffering to start to sanctify him, to build him into a better person, so that all the evil slowly just becomes used for his soul building in some regard. Now, let's talk about the whole idea that you met right up Frodo, you know, why do you have to create that world with all the rape and the torture if it's only going to help a select people? Well, I don't think that's the case at all. I think it can be for anyone. I mean, God is greater than Gerald Tolkien. And sure, he creates a world where there is suffering to, to benefit a select few, but I don't think God necessarily has to create that kind of world where there is just 
some suffering for just a select few. I think it's anybody who wants to participate in the process of sanctification and soul building more than willing can 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 enter into that kind of process. Now you asked why did God create Satan when you first brought up? Well, again, it may just be that that was just a necessary result. That there would be some sort of cosmic leader of the dark forces regardless of what happened you know to quote dr strange in, in infinity wars given that he was able to look at all these possible futures tony there was no other way at some point there may this may be uh the best of all possible worlds where there still is triumphant good and evil is ultimately defeated as you know erasmus and stratton say in their paper on this idea it could very well be the case from our limited perspective we cannot necessarily use this aspect to say that somehow that God would be evidence that God doesn't exist due to that limited aspect of it all. God could very well have everything in view and know that this would be the best of possible worlds where there is enough soul building, or at least one of the best possible worlds if there's multiple equal ones, where there is enough soul building, there is triumphant good. And so I don't think that necessarily is a huge problem because ultimately you could make the case for triumphant good at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, and I think we're getting close to, to time, but I, I mean, I guess I would, I would respond in a couple, in a couple of ways, right? Because this, this is, and I'll bring it back to divine hiddenness. Because I know we've gotten into, yeah. into suffering again. I, I'm not sure it's entirely avoidable when you're talking about hiddenness to get into suffering, but like it, it seems to me that that divine hiddenness exacerbates the problem. That's that's why it comes up, right? Because because I could think of well, imagine imagine a worldwide Damascus Road experience. Just call it every 500 mm -hmm. years across every culture, every civilization, every nation, universally reported that there's this Damascus Road experience is all in a bit, right? Because the way the way that I look at it is, well, I mean, especially, you know, Christian apologists, they're going to they're say this is the type of evidence that we find convincing for the resurrection. The resurrection was the, the, the exemplar of the opposite of divine hiddenness, right? This, this is Emmanuel. This is God with us. This is, this is God appearing, right? This is the opposite of divine hiddenness, right? And this is the type of evidence that we find convincing of Emmanuel, of God with us, of the, that he cares, that he tried, right? And, and I would say, well, okay, if, if, that, if, if that's what is good evidence, then surely having more of that evidence would be better. Right. Um, you, you, you have if you have yeah, this, this, this universal, right, if you if you have testimony from a handful of eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus, which is debatable, but let's just grant it. And that is convincing of the resurrection or you think should be reasonably convincing of the resurrection. How much more convincing would it have been to have a universal you know, experience, even at the time of Jesus? written about across every single culture, every single language, it all happened in the same year, all that kind of stuff. If you had that evidence, I guarantee as, a, as an apologist, you'd be jumping up and down with joy if you, if you suddenly discovered this cache of papyri or stones across all nations, all times, they're all dated. You all would love it. It'd be fantastic. You wouldn't be like, oh, well, ooh, like that's taking away freedom. Um, that's making, uh, you know, that, that's making, that, that, that it's making it not as triumphant. Right, we could we could think of these trivial ways where God could have been less hidden, and it would have led to more cognitively robust belief, more salvation, more right, right. And that's just that's just one small example, and it's the type of evidence that I think that you would that you would uh, accept for the resurrection for a lack of divine hiddenness. Right, so so it seems that there's this there's this tension between trying to explain away divine hiddenness 
but also wanting that evidence uh, and really, really wanting it to be reasonable to believe that God wasn't hidden in this one instance uh, as a virtue. I, I think so, that there's the, the tension between those two things. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot here I want to say here. So I wrote a bunch of notes down here. So more evidence would be better. I mean, it could be, it could not be. I mean, as Jesus said, they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they would not be convinced even if someone were to rise from the dead. Let's use an analogy here. Let's use Christians as the sample. Let's say that Hinduism is true. And let's say a prophet starts coming into America and he's raising the dead and he's declaring Krishna as Lord and he's healing the blind. Tyler, do you think James White is going to close up shop? Do you think Jeff Durbin is going to close up shop? Or do you think very well they might do what the Pharisees did, that that he's casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub? You know, we got our presuppositionalists. I don't think Kenneth Copeland is going to close up shop. I don't think, you know, Dwethbo Baptist Church is going to go away. So, you know, this is something Paul Moser again talks about in his book on divine hiddenness, is that more evidence may not actually create the cognitively robust theism that we want. And if we look in, if we're going to look at this internally from Christianity, when it happens at the Exodus, it doesn't work. The moment they get into Canaan, they immediately start worshiping other gods and did that even before they went into Canaan. Uh, so there is this idea that if God is aware of everyone's motives even better than we are, then he can very well know that, no, that necessarily will not work. I mean, if they're not going to, as he said, if they're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets, more evidence isn't necessarily going to work. And again, we often think that, yeah, if we just got a little bit more of something like that or that, we would get what we want. It goes back to my analogy I gave with dealing with my own viewers. A lot of them come to me and they have serious issues they need answered. But in my experience of having done this for years, if I just keep feeding them answers and feeding them answers, it doesn't actually make them more interested in apologetics. It doesn't actually make them become better critical thinkers. It just makes them become super dependent on me. Now, that doesn't happen for all of them. Everybody's different. You know, look at Jesus does in the Gospel of John when Lazarus dies. Mary gets tears. Martha gets discerned. Everyone's going to be different. So I'm not saying that's the case with everyone. But if there's an omniscient God out there and he can know very well that if he gives certain people information, it may not actually lead to the cognitively robust theism. It could lead to a pharisaic mindset. It could lead to people acting like they did at the Exodus. I mean, I just did a video, uh, why Jesus hasn't returned yet. And I said, let's just say Jesus descended right now and said, I'm back, I'm king. Uh, do we really think the, China's the People's China Republic is gonna disband? Is the Russian Federation gonna pack up? I, I don't think so. I think people were going to try to use Jesus. They're gonna to try to make him fit with the system because we're simply not ready for that. And that's one of the reasons the video is subtly a post-millennialist message. We're just simply not ready to worship him as he said, as he wants. It's like he says in Matthew 23, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We as a people just simply aren't ready for that right now. And he says in John, it's better that I go away so that the helper will come because he will convict the world of sin. He, the God in his omniscience knows this is a better process ultimately. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I would just say, well, I mean, then the eminence then the is gone. Um, but, I, well, I mean, Jesus said, look, if they didn't believe in, in, in most of the prophets, then, then, you know, it wouldn't basically, you know, it wouldn't matter if someone raised from the dead. But then he raised from the dead, right? And it was expected that mm -hmm. his resurrection from the dead would be valuable evidence to those who didn't have Moses and the prophets, right? He would go to the Gentiles, he would go to the nations, he would convert Jews, right? I don't know if that if that passage can function that way. 
right? I, I don't know if it's a defeater for the problem of divine hiddenness because Jesus himself basically says, look, yes, they have Moses and the prophets. But then he showed, you know, resurrection should engender uh, genuine, genuine belief, right? That, that, that should be part of it. But then I would also say, well, you know, uh, why, what? If, if that's the case, then again, I'm going to go back to then why evangelize, right? If 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 divine hiddenness is buffered, it is supported by saying, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Evidence might not engender, you know, belief. It might engender the false belief. Well, then, then why would Christian apologists go around talking about evidence for the resurrection? And why would more evidence for the resurrection, right? I, I, I don't think I don't think if you found, you know, I, I don't I don't think, and, and I'm not trying to psychologize or anything like that. I mean, this this would have been me as a, a you know as an apologist. If they suddenly found this cache of documents in China, right, at the exact same time where you had these people that basically said that they had this vision of, uh, of what was called, they said, oh, he showed up, they said his name was Jesus and all that kind of stuff. And it was it was veridical. Somehow we could rule out forgery and fakes and later, you know, all that kind of stuff. Christian apologists would be thrilled to use it as evidence, right? They wouldn't be like, oh, well, more evidence that might not work. Right, because they would understand the more evidence for the claim would be better, and I'm not sure that your example of, of the follower of health because that's 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 truncating functional knowledge. That's saying I can't do it for you. I, I can't I can't force you to know how to do research, how to do apologetics, all that kind of stuff. I can't I can't do it for you. I'm I, I'm truncating your functional knowledge. That's different than relational knowledge that's that's different than to know someone in the biblical sense so to speak that's different than 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 that type of father-child relationship right i i don't hide myself from my sons because i said oh well if i didn't hide myself then you wouldn't know how to relate to me or something like that we, we don't collapse that type of functional skill knowledge of how to do something with personal inner relationship knowledge of someone um, and so I, I, I think that your, your, your attempted analogy at saying, well, I, I do this, if I do this for my followers, they don't learn how to do it. That's not analogous to saying I would hide from my children that way, because otherwise, if I don't hide, they're not going to learn it for themselves. Right. We don't do that in relational knowledge. Well, I mean, again, it, God can create a world where we can have relational knowledge without just basic theism or overwhelming evidence where no one can deny it then I don't see that's necessarily the case that he has to provide that, especially if, if there is evidence that it will get in the way of our own sanctification. And you try to, like, you know, like, well, you know, the whole resurrection thing. Well, notice how the early Christians argued. They argued from the scriptures itself. They argued from the testimony and from what the uh, apostles were saying. So they're arguing from basically the word and the uh, word inspired by the Holy Spirit at that time, not necessarily saying like, yes, you can go and you can he'll make it some big grand appearance to you, that kind of thing. Uh, again, you brought up why the evangelized thing. Well, again, it seems like the only issue that, that you're, this is being taken in, into is like it's just to avoid hell. But again, we believe as Christians we evangelize because we want to make the world a better place. We want to make people uh, find their true fulfillment and their true happiness. We believe that is in Christianity. So it's it's not just about getting fire insurance out to everyone. It's about making people have their eudaimonia moment, have their eudaimonia experience, and truly come to this. And yeah, if there was a cash found of these documents in faraway China, I think Christians would rejoice. 
I don't think Muslims would. And again, I go back to my example of the Hindu prophet. Uh, again, I do not think if Hinduism was true and there was a Hindu prophet running around America doing things like Jesus did, that Christians are going to close up church. I recognize that Christians can be just as stubborn as non-Christians, can be just committed emotionally to their beliefs as non-Christians can be. And this is why I think one of the beauty, beautiful aspects of Christianity is that we're saved by grace, not of works or that kind of aspect, because we understand that at some point there is a grace aspect there. Uh, with my analogy of using talking to my own followers and what, now I don't, it goes back to the idea that I have to stay hidden to some degree, because if I, if I don't, if I'm in their face so much, it, it doesn't actually create the soul building I think that they would need to go through. It would be more like this just basic idea that they just keep coming to me, coming to me, this kind of thing. Uh, you know, kind of like what the Israelites did in the Exodus wilderness period. They just came to God when they had a problem. And then when he was gone and they got their land, well, now we got other gods we can worship. It was that just kind of idea. It didn't build a loving relationship where people sacrifice to God because they want to, or they come to the tabernacle because they want to. Uh, and so I think in some regards, I, me staying hidden has actually helped some people uh, become better critical thinkers. Because when I, well, like recently I checked a message uh, someone sent me and he's, he said, hey, help me with this. And then like a week later, I saw another message. Actually, I figured it out. Never mind. I'm like, yes, that's, that's what I was hoping for. So me actually staying hidden in that regard actually led to him figuring out his own issue. And he's, I think in some regard, he actually became a smarter person in the long run. Yeah, but I would say you weren't hidden, right? You were, you were available. He knew how to message you. He knew, he knew how to reach you. He knew your name. He knew what you looked like. Yeah, knew, we can right? pray to God. There, 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 there's lots of knowledge about you that's directly available to that person. Right. Yeah, so same, same, so I, same, I would say the same with the Bible. Yeah, but 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 that but then I would say, OK, I mean, granted, I, I, I understand that, that we're dealing with an internal critique. Right. Th this is where I am going to say, well, then I would just push back and say, OK, well, now I'm just cognizantly moving to an external critique and saying, OK, great. Now, can yeah. you prove to me that the Bible actually is the inspired word of God? Right. Because in order in order to justify that claim, I would say, OK, well, if. That's the if you're if you're going to go on that as a defense, I'm going to say fine. But that, now, right? So, okay, let me let me let me. Oh, you've hit on something I think is, is is important just dialectically that people should understand. Internal critique, right? I'm saying if we take Christianity as true for the sake of argument, right? There's this internal problem. I can't go to external arguments. I can't go to external facts, right? That that's not a valid way to argue. This is one of my pet peeves all times when we're talking about free will and we're talking with atheists about theism and they're all that kind of stuff right so so I, I can't help myself to these these ideas outside of Christianity because then I'd be invalidating mm -hmm. but I'm gonna say okay well now to, there's this internal critique right and it's let's say it's let's say it's 20 points long to answer one point of it you need to now rely on the Bible being this inspired word of uh, you know revelation from God I'm gonna say okay let's let's pause now because to answer this one part of divine hiddenness, now you're appealing to something. I'm saying, okay, fine, let's put a pin in that. Now, externally, can you give me independent reason to think that that's the case, right? You're not, by the way, for the audience and for you, I'm not expecting you to do that right now. There's no way in the world we'd have time constraints. So I'm not, I'm not saying you like can't do that or you haven't met your burden if you don't or anything like that. Just, I, you know, I, I'm acknowledging that now we would probably shift to an entirely different topic to demonstrate the Bible. So I'm real, actually, real quick. hopefully you know, coming to your defense and saying, Let, let's put a pin in that, but I'm not, you know, it's not that you haven't met your burden or anything like that. That would just take us too far. Well, 
Real quick, th th this is my point, though. When we get through the weeds of divine hiddenness, I mean, it really just be it shifts. We shift to other arguments like, is this really true? And I think that's where the conversation that Christians and non-Christians need to have. I don't think divine hiddenness is really that much of an internal issue, because when we hack through all the weeds, where do we end up? Well, is the Bible really true? Exactly. That's where the conversation ultimately ends with divine hiddenness, because once we get through all the weeds, we realize that maybe we should be having a conversation about an external critique, not any, the internal one isn't really getting us there. Well, I think it's both, right? Because I, I, I mean, I still think there's strong internal tensions, right? I think you have major intentions when tension when it comes around evangelism, when it comes around, you know, the, the, the problem of what it means to be a loving father. When, it, when I, I think there are all these kinds of other things. It's just on that one point, you now need the, the, the scriptures to come in to overcome it. And I'm going to say, okay, well, for that one point, now we would have to switch external. I don't think that it's, you, you've, you know, I, I love you, but I, I don't think you've hacked through all the issues to solve all of the internal issues that are there. It's just now at this one, we've hit a terminus where we have to switch to external for this one point. Well, right, I don't Mike, have, you, have an hour. We can only, well, yeah. I, we uh, Mike, do you have one so final comment to respond to Tyler? Then we can end it. We can end I it have, at that and go to Q&A. I have one or two sentences. So, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with Tyler. I don't. I only had an hour to really deal with this. These few internal issues. I think, given another five hours, we could hammer out even more problems. And so I. So yeah, I agree. We. I, I've been at time to get to every internal issue, but I, I think they can be addressed. All right. All right. Thank you guys for the lovely conversation. Uh, I was in just joyful delight back here uh the audience was enjoying it as well and the moderators i thank you much for really keeping things under control as well you know i ain't about to tolerate people being rude in the live chat so you guys kept it under control make sure they didn't disrespect mike or tyler and i appreciate you guys for that so that said we're about to jump into some questions here uh, well what's marlon will you do that i'm gonna try to reset my camera just so you know okay sounds good uh, I'll hold on to that super chat then. That super chat is actually for you, Mike. So I'll hold on to that to you, able to get that done. Um, so we'll go with a question for Tyler real quick oh, here. Yeah, Mike. All right, so Tyler, this question's for you. So is Tyler still a Christian presupper or even a non-Christian presupper? I guess that doesn't, uh, that doesn't yeah. have to do with the topic. And I prefaced all you guys when we start this show to make sure the questions are on par with the, the topic. But nonetheless, Tyler, you can answer that question. Sure. Yeah. I, I, not a Christian. I'm not a Christian, so I wouldn't be a Christian presupper. Um, I, I, and, and I would be a presupper in, you know, theistic presuppers are simply in the sense of kind of a, a mere precept. I pointed this out when I was a Christian precept that I think most apologists, if you actually boil down to kind of an abductive presuppositionalism, most classical apologists are precepts, right? If, if you look at the type of arguments, you know, like William Lane Craig's argument from intentionality, um, you, if you look at some of these, those are our presuppositional arguments. They are saying God ontologically, right? They're not, they don't make revelational claims, but they're saying God ontologically is the necessary precondition for rationality, for laws of logic, for intentionality, for rationality, all those kinds of stuff. So I, I would say that, I, I, yes, those are actually some of the reasons I'm still a theist. Uh, because I still think that something like God, what we talk, what we what we mean when we talk about God, um, is still a, a necessary precondition for those. I, I don't know how. I, I I'm I, I like that that Michael is a, is an idealist um, because I think that that type of um, irreducible mind in the background 
is a strong explanation that has very low ad hocness. It's very elegant as an explanation. It has high explanatory scope. It has high explanatory value. I think it just radically outpaces, uh, you know, competing views that explain the foundations of rationality. So, you know, I, I, that is one of the reasons why I'm still a theist. I, right. I would just want to say real quick, I think every Christian should be in the pre-supper and also dinner and after supper. I think we should really just be expanding our meals. <laughs> Whoa, I mean, I'm Mike, you a mess, man. You, know. Ooh, you are a mess, Mike. You're a complete mess, man. All right. <laughs> let me. <laughs> All right. So here's a super chat, Mike. So once again, this is not on topic, but super chats. Uh, you have a debate challenge out there. Uh, let's debate the deity of Jesus. Are you willing? I don't know who you are. Um, and. I don't really like when people do that kind of thing. Um, again, it, I have made public challenges for debates, but typically I ask people to go privately as well. And I, I've done that as well when I, when I do those. So if you want, maybe contact me privately, see if we can set something up. Right now, I am trying to have less debates, at least for a year, because I need to get caught up on videos. I'm still trying to play catch up from when I finished my master's in philosophy. I'd like to get caught up and get someplace where I, I feel comfortable. I have enough videos planned out ahead. So I was going to try to take a couple months and do that. So if we're going to do that, it may not be for a while because I got a lot I'm trying to focus on right now. But yeah, just again, privately, and we'll see if we can set something up. And also, I will say this. I, I, I hope this doesn't come across as, as rude, but I try to pick debate opponents that I think have sizable audiences because I get people messaging me like once a week asking me to debate. And like it's like I got to I, – if I did that, I'd, I have no time to do anything else. So I, I have to be very careful. It's like the same reason Sam Harris won't debate me. It's not worth his time. He's got a much, much bigger audience. It's not, it's not gonna it's not gonna do him any good to come down to a lowly YouTube channel. So at some point I also have to be a little selective of that. Because if I didn't, I literally just have to debate every single person that asked me. And so sometimes I gotta go, is it gonna be practically useful in that you have a sizable audience? I have a sizable audience, is it gonna benefit? Um, like so just try to keep that in mind because practically sometimes I don't think it's necessarily going to be worth in the long run. And I, I, I know that comes across as arrogant and I apologize, but it's just something that I've had to deal with given that I get so many fucking debate challenges and I just don't have time for them all. It, it, it's not arrogant at all. It, it's not, it's it's not, not arrogant, arrogant at all, by the way. Yeah, definitely not. Definitely <laughs> not. All right, so let's see if we can get some questions that's more centerlined on the topic here. But also, uh, his name is Andrew Griffin. Thank you for the support, Andrew. Appreciate you, man. All right, so let's see what we got here. This is for you, Tyler. Have you read C.S. Lewis? Why isn't it sufficient for eternal omniscient substance to not reveal the details of all things, even though what's hidden, it'd be a really good thing? Maybe really good. Um, I have read C.S. I mean, I've read a lot of C.S. Lewis, actually. Um, so I, what do you mean by have I read C.S. Lewis? Is there a certain uh, book, article, you know, whatever it is that you would you would be interested in? Sure. Um, sorry. I, because I was having issues, I'm on my phone. So the printing is like very, very, very small. Why isn't it sufficient for an eternal omniscient substance to not reveal the details of... I'm not sure I even understand the question. Right. So... I, 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 I guess my answer, if I understand the question right, and, and one of you maybe correct me if I'm understanding it wrong, I, I'm not saying that, that, that God should 
um, or is somehow obligated or it'd be best for him to reveal everything. Right? That, that, that would just be, I mean, that would be an obscenely <laughs> uh, aggressive and strong, bold claim to make. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't think that that would be, that, that's not the claim that I'm making or the argument that I'm making that he should. Um, it just seems to me that there are trivial ways that God could be less hidden um, that would, you know, if, if God is by nature love, um, if, if, you know, salvation is a, is a main ends of him, even if soul building is a main ends, um, it seems that there are just trivially easy ways to conceive of God being less hidden and to accomplish those ends better. Um, so that, that's, that's really what the, the question is. All right, Mike, any thoughts? Nah. All right. Uh, we have a super chat here from Chris. Thank you so much, Chris. Appreciate the support. Chris, Mr. Chris Date. Hope all is well with you, brother. Hope all is well. All right. So we got a question here, and this is for Mike Jones. I was so impressed Hello. by your performance here. Thanks for defending the faith so well. I love your Lord of the Rings and Inception analogies. I love to collaborate on something, given our many differences. Let me know. Yeah, yeah, I love Chris. I think he's great. Um, yeah, I'd love to collaborate on something. Just message me. You know how to message me, man. I do. Messenger is probably the best when it comes to because I think we're Facebook friends. So yeah, just yeah, message me if you got any ideas. I'd love to. Yeah, because you know. So yeah, I'm really really honored by that. Sure, be, be glad to. All right, all right. Well, I'm sure you ain't got nothing to add on to that, Tyler. So we're good. We're oh, good. I, I would just, I would just say you know I would love to see you two on the same side of debate. I, I've said for years. I think Chris Date is one of the best if not the best debaters that that christian academics have um and and michael you know i i've told you many times i think you're also one of the best you're a fantastic debater i've always enjoyed you i would love to see you two on the same side of debate debating atheists or 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 whatever you know that, that'd be fantastic if you guys can arrange it well I'd, if you're i'd be if you're fan. gonna keep complimenting me you should buy me a drink first <laughs> or after <laughs> they I they 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 not all that uh tyler they, they i i just leave it at that <laughs> no i love you guys i love you guys man i watch almost everything that that the, those, those two guys put out so yeah they're beasts man really good debaters man really really good all right so we have another question here this is for tyler a lot of questions for you, Tyler, man. A lot of questions, man, as you probably expected. Uh, all right. Why is the divine hiddenness a problem for theism? Using your father-son love analogy, are you okay with not being loved by a non-Christian God? Yeah, so so I said at the top of the show, <clears throat> I, it's not that um, that these aren't issues for theism broadly. It's just that I think Christianity, because it has more concepts in it, it has uh, what, what we call more conceptual baggage. It makes the problem just more pointed. It makes it harder. It gives it, it, gives it more, um, you know, to use in engineering terms, it gives it more single point failure spots. Um, and so I, I think it's a bigger problem for Christian theism than it is for general theism. Um, and part of that also comes from on general theism, there, we, we don't have these kind of additional you know, revelational claims. Like there, there, there's no source of revelation for me that I'm beholden to believe that God is love by nature, for example. Um, so there, there, there's none, there's none of that. So I don't have those same like single point failure ish areas. 
It doesn't mean that this is not an issue that I have to come up with some type of general theistic uh, type of type of uh, explanations for it's for. And, th and that, that still is part of the exploration and part of the reason why I love still having these conversations, uh, because, I, you know, I just think it's interesting and important. All right. Mike, any thoughts? Nah, I mean, I've said everything I can in, in the conversation. I'm just not going to rehash it all out. I think, you know, I think right. Tyler's you know, doing pretty good on that. His own, if the questions for him, go for it. Yeah. All right. Let me see here. All right. Another question here from Jeff Ellen Berger. Appreciate the question. God, Tyler, God was with man. They left. God was with man. They left. He, he time. Uh, yeah. time, and time, again was time and time again was meeting with them and even took on flesh to live with them. He didn't leave or is absent. We rebel and leave his presence. He draws us. Yeah, I, I mean, I think he's making the, the similar point that that uh, Mike gave for his his sanctification um, and soul building, right? That this this idea that, well, God did show up and, and it didn't guarantee this type of uh, you know, robust cognitive uh, belief and, and and sanctification. I would just I, I would point people back to those you know the the times in those discussions where we where we talked about it, and just say, well, not not only it, it seems to me that that <clears throat> without being too dismissive, and I know it's an internal critique as well. I mean that's that's part of the biblical storyline. So you're you're getting the the the, the cart before the horse a little bit, but it seems that 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 God could have simply revealed himself differently in a way that was more um uh conducive to the types of relationships that would come about from it right it, it doesn't I, I don't see why that was the one and only way that god could have shown up right god for example don't put the tree the knowledge uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden don't don't create it as a covenant of works where, whereby that eating from it is law breaking don't allow satan to go down and tempt them right there, there's all kinds of things that god could have done that would have prevented the fall and ergo would have prevented all of these negative outcomes from it. So it, it, it's explaining away a problem that didn't have to exist in the first place. All right. We have a, see if I can find one from Mike. Man, I want Mike to talk. And Me I can't too. seem to find one. I don't want to. I've talked enough, Marlon. I'm done. I'm going to show you a pout. <laughs> yeah, you're lucky for I'm you, done. Mike. I Hey, chat, ask me some questions for Mike, man. I want some no, hard ones, too. Don't ask me. No. <laughs> oh, man. All right, here's another question for you, Tyler, man. All right. How do you justify the logical faculties you appeal to in order to engage in this debate when God is pretty much unknowable in your view? Example, how do you answer Descartes? Ah, man, I struggle with these names, guys. So Y'all gonna help me out. Help me out. Descartes evil demon. Descartes yeah, evil I'm, demon. I'm a I'm a theist, right? De, Descartes <laughs> Descartes doesn't get you Christian, you know, revelational Christian theism, right? He doesn't get you biblical Christianity. God is sufficient, right? God is sufficient for the task for those things, right? This is why I said I'm still a theist because I still think God is is the best explanation for things like the laws of logic, rationality, personhood, right? All, all those types of things. So all, all you need is God to ground those things. You don't need 
and by the way, I, I point this out you know, to, to a bunch of precepts who are now trying to you know, precept me back into it. I point this out. Well, I, you know, t tell me how the hypostatic union, biblical inspiration and, and, and inerrancy and the Trinity, tell me how those add any conceptual grounding to, without begging the question, any conceptual grounding to an evident an explanatory, uh, explanatory foundation for rationality. The the closest thing that you get um, is there. There's uh, uh, I actually I'm forgetting the, the gentleman's name. Um, he's he's a Baptist. He he tried to he tried to argue. That uh, the, the two members of the Trinity would use the third one as a reference point to ground one in many things. Um, I can't remember his name. It's the closest thing you get. I don't think the argument works, but that, that's the only time someone's actually tried to explain why the Trinity and Christian revelation is specifically needed to ground rationality. Right? If you don't need that, then just appealing to God to do it is sufficient. Well, I'm a theist. I can just appeal to God. All right. And here is another, oh uh, no, that's what I want. All right, here's a question here. With divine hiddenness being a relatively new issue, do you think the issue is more indicative of society or human development in regards to proof? What do you think, Mike? I got you, got you. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's a new issue. I think you can find it throughout history. I don't think that necessarily means it's, it's a new issue. Um, I think it's just more prominent now, you could say, uh, given the rise of secularism, it's more kind of in our face kind of thing. Uh, so being right, do you think that the issue is more indicative of society or human development in regards to proof? I mean, I would say it may be more with uh, regards to maybe uh, the way the secular society has sort of evolved in our understanding of epistemology, perhaps. But I, I don't know. I feel like that'd be a whole nother deep dive into, into that kind of issue. And it's going to be different per philosopher, too. So it'd be really hard to just say, like, oh, yes, yeah, to make a hasty generalization there. Yeah, right and I would it? say it's it's not relatively new. Uh, it's been, it, it, now, there are, there are academic, you know, just, just like all, you know, just like lots of things, just like cosmological arguments. There are new versions that are being written and worked on. Like, so there, there are, you know, there's a resurgence of interest in it, but it's not a new argument mm -hmm. all right all right thank you guys for that and thank you for the support pals appreciate it all right this question's coming this question is also for mr mike jones mr kurt dr kurt jarris how you doing buddy hope all is well with you earlier you said you don't psychoanalyze non-christians do your theology explain and propose detail why some people don't believe does your theology explain in proposed detail while some people don't believe? Well, I mean, I can only speak generally of it, and I think I sort of talked about that throughout. Ben, uh, there are various, various reasons, and I think a lot of people don't even know a lot of their own reasons. Like, take C.S. Lewis's book, Till We Have Faces. You know, Orwell writes this big, long book about her case against the gods, and then she finally, at the end, gets to present her case before the gods, and it's not what she wrote. It's actually this of these other reasons that her the, why she was actually mad at the gods she wrote this big long book case against the gods she gets before them and the real reasons is is because they took psyche from her and that was the whole issue it had nothing to do with what she had thought and i think a lot of times we do that to ourselves i mean i know that when i was 
20 years old or so, I blame people for other problems. And I look back and go, man, I was really a narcissist back then. I really was selfish. And I think we will have the same issues now that we will in 40 years or, you know, thousand years, I guess you could say. So we'll look back at when we were 30 and 40 and go, man, I really thought I had all the answers. Man, I really thought I had a good case against God or I really thought I had was justified in being mad at him. And really, we, we were just looking we'll be at the same issue. We'll be looking at our younger selves going, well, now we, the more that we have grown and matured and experienced soul building, now we truly know. So I think depending on the specific believer or non-believer, they're going to have different reasons for believing and non-believing. Uh, why do non, why do certain people not believe? I mean, if you're going to go on what the Bible says, a lot of it has to do with rebellion for the uh, resistant non-believers. If non-resistant non-believers exist, then they have good excuses. If there are resistant non-believers, it's going to be rebellion. Uh, the Pharisees are going to have a different reason for rebelling than you know the, the pagan worshippers will. Uh, it's, it depends. It's ultimately going to come down to the individual, and there could be multiple reasons. It's hard to really say. So because human psychology is complex, let it be complex. I don't think we need to generalize too much. All right, Tyler, you have any thoughts? Uh, no, just that the the inverse of the question seems to be that well, if your theology doesn't have an explanation, then you should psychologize. And I would just say, I I just fundamentally disagree. I I agree with Michael that I don't think psychologizing why people believe or don't believe is really all that productive. All right. And here's a question for both of you guys here. Thank you, Jimmy, for the question. My question is for both interlocutors. And for Christianity, we live in an age that evidence evidences the victorious Christ, victorious Christ. How can we say God is hidden without begging the question? Tyler? Jim, Jimmy, I, I love you, man. I need to have you back on the show. Jimmy is uh, brilliant. Uh, this question, though, I'm going to say this as nicely as I can, I don't think is brilliant. Uh, because it seems to me that he's asking a question about begging the question, but the question begs the question, right? So, so if, if on Christianity we yeah. live in an age of, of evidences of the victorious, well, I'm going to say, well, that's just saying if, if we assume Christianity is true, <laughs> then isn't that isn't it begging the question to say that it's not true? And I'm going to say, well, I just don't grant the the question begging at the beginning. Then I, the, the way I avoid it is to say, well, I just don't grant the premise. Yeah, I would agree with Tyler. All right. All right, so we got about six minutes left in Q and A. So let's try to jam through some of these more, some more of these questions here. Uh, all right, we got this question here from Trey. Thank you, Trey, for the question. Can you expand on why you would share the gospel with those who are ignorant, if their ignorance will not bring them into judgment? Yeah, well, again, as I said, uh, again, ignorance does not mean automatic salvation. I mean, again, we can see that someone could move on into the afterlife and just have like a and become like Satan in that way. Is that they may be given all the knowledge they need and they still rebel. So ignorance itself in this life does not guarantee eternity with God. So, and again, this is we're told to spread the gospel, uh, not because we need to give everybody fire insurance to avoid hell. It's because Christianity is eudaimonia. It is it is the reason for living. It is what is going to give us the most fulfilling things. It's like if I figured out the perfect diet for humanity, many people could go on living their, 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 with their regular diets 
in the world. I'm still going to tell people the greatest diet out there exists. and You can live a, the most fulfilling life possible with this certain diet. I'm still going to go ahead and tell them, even if they choose to reject it and live on a lesser diet kind of thing. And I'd say that the Christian message is that this is the reason for living. You will have a much better life living in Eden with Christ and living outside of Eden. So come into Eden. Uh, start now. I, you know, what Peter Kreft says, in the end, uh, the, the, the saints will say they've always been in heaven and the damned will say they've always been in hell. It's always been that case because we believe that when we enter into a relationship with Christ, we are entering into heaven, the process of sanctification itself. And we will always look back on even the trials we go through as things that we were happy we went through because it turned us into the the, uh, the sons of God that we are meant to be kind of thing. So I think you, why wouldn't we want to expand upon that? All right. Tyler, any thoughts? No, I, we can, we can go to, I, I already, I already gave my thoughts on that early. Okay. That's good. All right. We have a question here for Tyler. Thank you for the support slam. You're already my mod. So you have supported me more than you need to. So thank you for the support though, slam. Uh, let me bring that back up. There you go. For Tyler, why do you believe in a God more hidden than Yahweh? At least Yahweh wrote a book. I, I uh, just I love the bluntness of the question. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, just, I, just, yeah. Uh, is that a winky face at the end? I can't tell. Um, yeah. So, so I would just say, well, <clears throat> I don't think that 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 uh, the God of theism is is more hidden. Um, I mean, in fact, if you accept, you know, Christianity is true to begin with, you would have to say that God is just as revealed to all people as he is to, to, to as the God of theism, right? Because he's revealed, you know, Romans run is revealed, uh, his, you know, his invisible attributes in all creation, right? So we would say, well, we, we observe God just as much as you do, even if your view is right. Um, and then I would just say, well, I don't think Yahweh has wrote a book, written, has written a book, right? So you'd have to demonstrate that um, over over and against the, the numerous objections um, that that many uh, you know better better and smarter than me uh, have, have also presented against it and all the issues that rise up so I would just say you know I don't I don't know that Yahweh wrote a book uh, and if that's the type of book that Yahweh produced there are problems with that so um, yeah all right all right and here's a super chat thank you so much for the super chat jeff appreciate the support uh with love and respect tyler suggesting god shouldn't have placed a tree is to say god shouldn't give us choice is that better or that's so because you stand on the other side of a choice we made yeah so uh, i mean i would have a lot to say in this because this touches on what's necessary for freedom and so on and so forth though um i mean but the but the first thing i point out is i mean I didn't make the choice in the garden, um, you know. If, if that really happened, that wasn't that wasn't my choice. Um, and then, you know, typically would come back and say, "Oh, well, you know, you would have likely made the same choice." And I would say, "Well, I don't know that I likely would have made the same choice." If if Christianity is true, the only reason that I can think of that I would have made the same choice is because I'm prone to sin. But I'm only prone to sin because of the fall. So it's not actually clear that that unfallen Tyler, whatever that even means, would have made the same choice. Right? If libertarian freedom is true, it seems just as likely that we wouldn't have made the same choice because there's, there's, there's nothing that would have determined that we would have made the same choice. So um, so I, I think there's there's lots of problems with that. But then going back, it just seems, well, that, that's like saying that God should put a, a, the same type of setup in heaven because otherwise 
there's no choice in heaven. Well, no, we, we would say that there could be all types of choices. You can have choices from, from a whole uh, you know, a cornucopia of equally, equally good goods to choose from. Um, we, we would say that you know, God, God, is, God is ultimately free. But I doubt that Jeff, if he if he's if he's any type of consistent, uh, you know, orthodox theist at least, is going to say that God could choose the evil, right? And then you'd have to deny impeccability. Um, so we'd say, well, well, God's ultimately free, as you know, he can choose from a range of options, but all the options are good. Um, that the fact that God doesn't have a bad option or cannot choose bad doesn't mean that he's somehow not free. So why couldn't you know humanity be be set up with the same why? Why was the option to choose either good or evil? Why couldn't it be good and other goods? All right. Yeah, I would and just we... say as a theistic evolutionist, um, I, I think there's a lot more going on here. I follow John Walton in that when God is going in Genesis 3, it's not so much this idea of changing their nature. It's God removing blessing and cursing is about giving God's protection, removing God's protection. And so God just removes them from the, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. So they're basically exiled. Uh, and so check out my Genesis 1 to 11 series because I think there's a lot more going on in there. Uh, I think it has more to do with soul building in and of itself in the beginning process than this idea that Genesis 1 is about a perfect creation. I think there's actually evidence that death already existed. And in Genesis 1, God calls humanity to subdue creation. So there's this idea that the rest of creation needs Eden brought to it. Uh, and that will require struggle and fight and that kind of thing. But there's a lot more going on there, I would say, from a theistic evolutionist perspective. All right, all right. And this will be the final question of the night here. Thank you, Colin, for the question. Can a feeling of divine, this is for Tyler, can a feeling of divine hiddenness be a temporary feeling? How long should a person wait before they conclude God doesn't exist? Yeah, so it's a good question. I, I don't know. I, hmm. It's not merely a feeling of divine hiddenness, right? There, there's, there's intellectual arguments of divine hiddenness. The, the, you, know, you can talk about what what we would expect to find from God, what would be consistent, what would what would lead to other ends, right? So it's not just a feeling of divine hiddenness, but there is a feeling of divine hiddenness, right? You do, you do feel an absence, right? And, there, and there, I, I would say if someone is, it, you, this gets tricky because then this is going to get kind of a, you know a ministerial question from someone who's no longer a Christian. Right. Uh, you know, I, I would say if it's if it's if they still have the cognitive beliefs, they're not convinced by the arguments that God does. Exist. I mean, I had, a, I had a whole bunch of other arguments for why I came to think there was problems with the Trinity, problems with hypothetic union, problems with the conjunction of classical theism and biblical Christianity and Christianity. Itself, right. All these other problems. Divine hiddenness was just one of them. If it's merely a, you know, an issue of hiddenness. But they still believe that it's all true. I mean, I would I would encourage that person to, you know, continue you know, in, in kind of a Pascalian existence and continue to, to try and not necessarily disrupt their entire worldview based on based on the field. Um, so. All right. Yeah. I just want to say that um, when it comes to the Trinity, that is something I, I think I want to write my dissertation on. And my, my thesis is going to be a lot of the issues, the logical problem of the Trinity, it, it can be done uh, with stop talking about the trinity as we are and start using the the language we find in philosophy of mind so start talking about the trinity like we talk about frankfurt case using language we use when we talk about frankfurt cases or what daniel dennett talks about or david chalmers and i think when we get into that realm a lot of these issues with the trinity are going to dissipate so that's something i want to focus on in future research all right well, guys, thank you so much. You guys have been great. This is the last comment. This is from Chris Date. This is towards Tyler. Thanks for his kind words about me. So 
Chris Davis, thank you, Tyler, for your kind words uh, concerning his apologetic ability. So, um, yeah, guys, you guys have been great, man. And I think I got a lot out of it. And the audience definitely did. And I definitely appreciate you guys, man. I know times get tough and time changes things change man and you but you guys were able to do it and i thank you guys uh do you guys have any closing words before i let you guys go yes can people in the chat vote on who is the best beard of us three i would like to know <laughs> hey they were cracking jokes about your hair mike in the uh in the comment uh, man yeah they're cracking jokes about about your hair man say so you didn't have your hair together man they're just getting on your case a little bit <laughs> i think Marlon, can Marlon I, my hair is crazy pole. What'd you say, Tyler? The, uh, I, I said, I think you can throw up a poll about who has the best beard in here. Yeah, man, I got the goatee, man. Y'all ain't beat this, brother. Y'all ain't beat this. <laughs> my, my my beard is wild. I'll get random strands. will just shoot up, and I can't push them down. So it's like, I got wild facial hair. I can't keep up. With it. So, so one of my, one of, if I can tell just a, an angel, I won't tell my friend's name. One of my favorite prayer requests ever. I was in college. And a friend of mine, very sincerely, we were going through prayer. Asked, he's like, "I know it's, I know it's, it's a problem, but it, but it's causing me like, like self uh, perception issues. Can can we pray that God will connect my mustache to my beard? Because I always have to call, like, like lift it up, it doesn't connect. And he's like very self conscious of it. So we we very seriously prayed uh, that his that his mustache would connect his beard, or and you know we we tried to wrap it in, or that he would become much more comfortable with the way that God has made him. <laughs> hilarious man hilarious man i ain't got that issue with my beard be growing full full beard full 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 so all right guys you guys take care man and look forward to speaking to you guys at some point in time again man thanks again and uh take care all right thanks so much all right folks another great one in the books and i hope you guys got a lot out of this man now that i you know this is a first time topic on the gospel truth. And I think the reason why is that we don't hear a lot about divine hiddenness, right? Um, this is usually an argument that atheists make, but even I don't really hear atheists making this argument a lot. So I don't see this topic really brought up a whole bunch, uh, but nonetheless, that's why I appreciated this topic because what it did, it brought us all to a level of understanding, right? To be able to uh, hear these arguments, hear the thoughts, hear the concerns, of course, Tyler, he bought more. He brought more of a, a theist understanding to the argument, um, but it, it allows us to gather an understanding, you know, and as believers, we need as much understanding as we can, right, to be able to engage the world with Christian truth. And that is the goal of any believer, right? Any Christian, you should be ready to engage the world with Christian truth. So we bring on these different topics and particular divine hiddenness so that we can be prepared and that we can have conversations with those who may not believe in the God of the Bible. And so I thank Mike, I thank Tyler for coming on and spending time with us and uh, giving us a rundown and having a very fruitful, what I would, I would say a very fruitful discussion. Like I'm telling you guys, man, anyone that's been following this show for any reasonable amount of time know that in the past, I've had some really knucklehead, tough debates, man, like really hard head debates, right? Where the two interlocutors are really bumping heads. And then it really, you really don't hear the arguments. You're more entertained because of the emotional status of the two debaters, right? Um, they're all wound up and passionate instead of just really dealing with the essence of the conversation. And so 
that takes away from the actual debate or the discussion, the disagreement, right? Uh, but when we're able to get guys on and really who really understand the substance of the argument are able to engage in it in a manner that where we all can understand and we all could walk away with a better understanding of the topic. Uh, it helps us, right? It makes for a more enjoyable show. And yes, obviously there's an entertainment value to this. Uh, so there's always that value, but even more importantly, there is that educational value, that growing in Christ value, right? Um, as we entertain these topics and deal with these topics that are at hand. And so I really do thank Tyler. I really do thank Mike for coming on. They are great and they, they definitely articulate themselves in a very professional manner. And that's always appreciated on the gospel truth. All right. Uh, but that's it. I'm going to get out of here. Um, remember, guys, make sure you're subscribing to the gospel truth and hit that notification bell before you leave. If this show is a blessing to you and you really enjoyed the show, you really got a lot out of the show, then that should encourage you to look forward to what is to come on the gospel truth, right? So that means that you need to subscribe and you need to hit the notification bell because you don't wanna miss out on any of the shows, com commentaries or interviews that we have coming up here in the future. The next debate that I have coming up is with Jeremiah Nortier and Dakota Sorensen. And they're gonna be talking about baptism regeneration. Dakota Sorensen is a Anabaptist and uh, Mr. Jeremiah Nortier, or Pastor Jeremiah Nortier, is a Reformed Baptist. So this should be a fun debate, a fun conversation, all right? Uh, that said, I'm going to let you go. Hope to see you next time. May God bless you and may God keep you.